It's not something that I normally do uh, to explain why we approach a text on a given on a given occasion, but this evening I'd like to do so. But I'd like to do so by not first of all taking us to the text to explain why we're here in Zechariah 6. I simply want to call your attention to a fact that you and I are very keenly aware. We live in degenerated times. We live in a declining age. Now the reality is, you and I know this well. In fact, the fact that I've said that to you um, really is not surprising. Many are saying that in our generation. But friend, the reality is things are more dire. Things have descended far greater than probably you and I could ever know. It's not just that things are bad. The difficulty is we don't really realize how bad things really are. And below, just to illustrate that point, if you go back just a few generations ago, these lands would watch on bated breath. They would watch with the utmost intent, intention to see what God was doing in the courts of his church. The news reporters would record it. The villagers would speak about it. The politicians would contemplate it just to see what God was doing in the courts of Zion. Even the unbelieving mind, for some reason, would have even those things fastened in the forefront of his thinking. On a night like tonight, when, we're, when a congregation is gathered for such a solemn thing as an elder election, a village like Lock Brickland would be abuzz with solemnity and earnest intent just to see what the Lord would do here. My friend, look at us. If the church even gets a mention in the news, we're surprised. And the reality is that even those who live closest to this meeting house have no idea, let alone any interest in what's going on this evening. That is only a superficial, that is only the slightest illustration of how far and how rapidly things have changed. And beloved, of course, the question that you and I are asking as we assess these things is what then shall we do? What will we do? And, and perhaps another question is, well then what may we also expect? Those are two pressing questions, and I think those two questions in many ways lead us to our text this evening. In many ways, Zechariah 6, I believe, gives us an answer to both. And what I'm speaking here of is particularly what you have from verse 9 and following. But as I call your attention to this text, allow me to illustrate just for you briefly the context. Zechariah is called to the ministry around the year 520 B.C. That's 520 years before Christ. That's 16 years after the exiles have returned from Babylon. And approximately 86 years since Judah first went into exile. Zechariah, as a prophet, is called into the ministry exactly two months after the prophet Haggai commenced his own. And Zechariah's ministry begins one month into the construction of the second temple. Now, why is that important? Well, friend, as you look at this text, it's important to remember that you have here two prophetic ministries that are taking place simultaneously. That primarily is Haggai and Zechariah, though Ezra, of course, is also a minister of the gospel in this time. But as you consider those last two men, you consider the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah, even the least disinterested reader, as he reads those two texts, recognizes that though these two prophets had the same context historically, 
Although they were looking at the church facing the very self-same issues, these prophets were very different. Reading the prophet Haggai, you find a man who is rebuking the present sins of the generation. He's very much God's mouthpiece calling for repentance, that is true reformation in the church. And so he's looking primarily at the present. But our prophet this evening is very much different. Different, first of all, because in the first six chapters of this prophecy, you find no less than eight visions and oracles. But also, as you look at Zechariah, you see that all of these visions, all of his preaching, point primarily to the future. He's looking primarily to those things that concern the people of God in the time to come. And what are those themes? Well, as you look through these visions, you see that those themes are divided around really two basic ideas. The first is is that God will display his wrath against his and his people's enemies. And secondly, that God, in spite of every impediment, over every difficulty, he will be gracious to his church. Those are the two principal ideas that you have in the first six chapters of this prophecy. And our text this evening is no different. In the first part of this chapter, the chapter that we read, you have a vision, the eighth of these visions. And in this vision, you have four horsemen, or really four chariots. And these four chariots set before us that image of divine judgment going throughout all of the earth. And and there, as you have in the eighth verse, through that work of judgment, God is, as it were, satiating his wrath. He's been angered, of course, against the enemies of his people. And here, as he sends out these four chariots, they're doing his bidding, which is to bring destruction upon his enemies. But as we come to our text this evening that begins in the ninth verse, you find not a vision, but you do find prophecy. You find a man who's not so much giving us what he's seeing, nor is he even giving us a sermon. He's giving us a symbol and even a ceremony. You have here the prophet called, and the words are solemn, aren't they? In the first, in the ninth verse, the word of the Lord came unto me. This is a moment of prophecy. Before we go any further, it's important for us to recognize this. Whatever is to come later, it's not a political moment primarily. It's not even a political moment in any sense. This is a prophetic moment. Yes, a prophetic moment carried to us in ceremony, as we'll see in the next verse. But prophecy, first and foremost. And so you have in the 10th and 11th verses the command. Make two crowns, one of silver and one of gold. Take them of the most prominent and wealthy men of the, of the returning exiles. And of these crowns, place them upon the most public man in the worship of God. Joshua, the high priest. This is a public prophetic moment. This is a ceremony that we, for, for every good reason, should have believed is quite public. Taking place in front of all of those who might be assembled in Jerusalem. And what is that moment? Well, friend, you see here a kind of coronation. A coronation, but of the strangest sort, of the most unusual kind. You have a coronation of a high priest. But as you find here in the the 12th verse, it's not even really Joshua that's crowned. And that is our question, first of all. Who is it that is crowned? And what is the work that is in view in this moment? First of all, who is crowned? The word of God reads in the 12th verse, speaking to Zephaniah. Speak unto him, that is Joshua, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. 
And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. And shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. The branch is the one who's primarily in view. That's his name. And first of all, friend, it's very clear to us in this text that the branch is not Joshua, the high priest. If you go back to the third chapter of Zechariah's prophecy, you'll find this. He he places, that is the Lord places Joshua, the high priest, among the crowd looking at this branch. He reads, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, once again, the branch. Joshua is assembled, according to the Lord, among those who observe this branch who would come. And in fact, as you look at verses 12 and 13 of our own text, all of what is predicated of the branch is future. Things that would not be fulfilled in Joshua himself. Well, as we step back from Zechariah's prophecy, we do find a clearer picture of who this branch is. You find here in the prophecy of Jeremiah these words. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. He shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Again, from the prophecy of Isaiah. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. A root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and rest, and his rest shall be glorious. That's the branch that's in view. The the branch that would come from the house of David. The branch that was also the rod of Jesse. And who is this branch? Well, Luke's Gospel tells us plainly. As Zacharias reflects on all that has gone before us, as we've seen in chapter 1, what does he say? He says, the day spring from on high has visited us. Striking is that word day spring there in the Greek. It's translated in the Old Testament in the Greek translation thereof as our word, the branch. It means really the same thing. This branch has visited us. Of course, dear friend, you see Christ. In this moment, then, as we look at Zechariah 6, we're supposed to see that Joshua, the high priest, stands as a type of the branch. And you see Joshua crowned with these silver and golden crowns. You're supposed to see Christ typified. Christ, really, the one who's crowned and declared publicly to be king in this moment. In other words, friend, Joshua stands here as a type of the one, as the book of Revelation tells us, Upon whose head is many crowns. It's Christ who's in view. But the question is, what is his work? And that brings us to what he says here of the branch. In verse 12 he says here, he shall grow up out of his place. Now the word place there is really the idea of from below. We could translate it rightfully as, he shall arise from below or from beneath. The sense is, he shall arise from a place that we are not expecting. He shall arise surprisingly. It's the very same sense that you have in Isaiah's prophecy. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, says Isaiah, and as a root out of a dry ground. A dry ground from which you would not expect any growth. A dry ground which you would expect could not actually hold any nourishment for growth. Yet there he shall come up. 
And the sense is, as the, as the prophet interprets it, is this. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The coming of this branch, in other words, is from an unexpected place. His coming is truly surprising. But what will this Christ do? Coming from this unexpected place, it says here, he shall build the temple of the Lord. The sense is just this, from contemptible, unexpected beginnings, from beneath, from below, Christ, contrary to carnal expectation, will build the temple. He will be the one who builds the temple. Now, beloved, as you look at this, it does raise the question, what kind of temple are we speaking of this evening? In the New Testament, Christ says he builds only one thing. That's in Matthew 16. I, says Christ, will build my church. The sense is that the temple in view here is that which is described in Ephesians 2. Christians are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple of the Lord. This is the edifice which the branch erects. This is that building which is constructed from beneath, contrary to carnal wisdom and expectation. This is that which Christ does in a surprising way. He builds the temple from unexpected places. And then we're told here, not only does he build the temple, but he bears the glory. Verse 13, he shall bear the glory after he builds the temple. Well, friend, as you look at the scriptures, as you look at the scriptures, you see one very basic theme emerge. In the temple of God, in the true temple of God, there is only one who is glorified. I saw, says Isaiah, the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is the only one exalted in the temple. And you see, friend, how the apostle puts this. Unto God be glory in the church, that is this temple, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Peter speaking of Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Jehovah alone is the one who's glorified, who bears the glory of the temple. And so, friend, as we speak of the branch, we speak of Jehovah. We speak of Jehovah incarnate. We speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, glorified in the church. And so, beloved, we could look at this text, verses 12 and 13, and paraphrase it very simply. It says, though Zechariah rather puts it to us this way, look at Joshua crowned and see Joshua, true Joshua, Christ, the branch, typified. Though he, the righteous branch, will arise from unexpected places, unexpected lowliness, he will build his church, and he alone will bear glory in her as her only king. And praise. What's striking then in this text, friends, we're told here, even as the Jews of old were told, that Christ is the true builder of the church, and he will do so contrary to carnal wisdom. Friend, very briefly, I want us to take up that theme. I want us to see it under three headings. I want us to see it how, according to what the text provides for us, it shows us first a calling, then a custom, and finally a counsel. First of all, that calling, 
He shall be called, says the prophet here, the branch. That's how he is named. In the Hebrew, the idea is that he is growth or spring. In fact, that's how it's translated elsewhere. Thy light, says the prophet Isaiah, break forth as the morning, and thine health spring forth. That's the word of the branch in our text, speedily. Again, in Psalms, we find the same word translated thus. Truth shall spring out, our word there, of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. How is Christ called? When he's called the branch, he is really called growth itself. He's called spring itself. Friend, we shouldn't be surprised at this, should we? This is the one who, after all, at the end of the age, cries, Behold, I make all things new. But in this moment, the prophet shows us that this is his name. He is growth, as it were, itself. He's called spring. He is called rejuvenation itself. That's the sense. And so as we read throughout the New Old Testament, this re- reference to the branch, we're supposed to see that. The prophet is setting before us Christ as he is the very epitomization of growth, of renewal, of spring. It is Christ's office to rejuvenate. I mean, see how the, see how the word of God brings us to us. When Christ calls to the church, he says this, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds has come. He speaks of spring because he is spring. He speaks of growth and he speaks of life because he is the branch. He is spring. Oh, and beloved, see how the prophet puts it to us. These two ideas are very clearly joined together in the prophet's mind in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And note the effect of this. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of the eyes, Neither shall he reprove with the hearing of the ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Rejuvenation, friend, alone comes from this branch. Newness of life comes only from the one who is the branch. Who is spring itself. And so, beloved, as you look at this text. The prophet sets before us a lively picture of Christ. He is called by the name growth. He's called by the name renewal. He's called by the name life. You see, friend, in one sense then, we are supposed to learn here that it is his principal labor, in a sense, to rejuvenate. It is his principal calling and task to make things new. And friend, the application from this first of all is to go to Christ for that growth. If he's pleased to be called the branch, if he's pleased to be called spring itself, well then, friend, of course that is an invitation in itself to go to him looking for that very thing. Looking for that reviving and that quickening grace. If he's pleased to be called by it, friend, he'll turn away none who look to him for it. But secondly, friend, that leads us to the second thing in our text, and that is the custom 
that Christ takes. The word in our translation reads that Christ, he shall grow up out of his place. And as I said to you before, that last word translated here, place, is really the word that is elsewhere used to describe from being underneath or from below. Coming from an unlikely place. Friend, I want you to note, just as we look at the context of this text, how profound that statement is. I mean, first of all, look at Israel. The prophet is sent to a people of whom this was said. All the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord. A people who is described thus, he showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. He speaks of a people to whom it was said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, friend, at first, this shows us the great privilege of Israel. But I highlight these points to you this evening just to show you how unique she was. How alone she was. That was the church under age. Alone. Barely a flickering candle in an abyss of darkness. That was Israel's identity. But it even gets narrower than that, doesn't it, in the Old Testament? Note what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 12. Unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation, shall ye seek. And thither shall ye come. In other words, I will place my name in one place. One mountain will bear my name. And then note this. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. It gets narrower still. There is one place on planet earth. There is one place on the face of the earth where the name of God is placed. One mountain, an even insignificant mountain in comparison with all the others. My friend, as you consider that, it becomes striking, doesn't it? As a Jew would walk to Jerusalem and see these things. Only in this place, you would say, is the name of God placed. Only among us, among all the multitudes of the Gentiles, is the name of the worship of God manifest. And then, friend, come to that same pious Jew as he looks at the temple in ruins. Come to that same man as he returns from 70 years in Babylon. And what does he see? He sees walls reduced to nothing. The place where God's name was, where the worship of God was centered. Reduced to nothing. Friend, if it's not taking place in Jerusalem. Well, friend, in what other nation could it be found? The worship of our God. That's the situation that Zechariah is called into. A people who see the cause of God tangibly reduced to rubble and ruin. And yet, here you find... You find these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, calling the people to rethink the whole thing. You remember what they were saying. They were saying the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. There are too many enemies around us. We ourselves are too much defiled. The cause of God is too low for us to really be looking to rebuild the temple. You see, friends, through their preaching, we're told... The elders of the Jews builded and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet. 
and Zechariah, the son of Ido. What do we learn from this? Well, briefly, friend, we see here in this text that Christ rejuvenates. He rejuvenates once all imaginable means are exhausted. He does this work of the branch in, as it were, the most unlikely of times. From the most least, from the least likely of places. And this is how the Lord has always done this. I mean, see the people of God in Genesis. Here you have Abel, righteous Abel, slain. Where then will the people of God be found? Well, the Lord raises up a Seth. And then at the end of Genesis 4, you have revival. The moment of darkness leading into great light. Or, or take the destruction of the nations at Babel. Take them as they're scattered. Take them as it seems that the name of God is obliterated. Then you find the calling of Abraham. Well then take Abraham's descendants as they go into Egypt. Or take them primarily right before the Exodus. Under a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. Who has no care for the church of God. And then the Lord delivers. Brings forth one of the greatest, really one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in all of the Old Testament. Take even our own prophet in his time. The church reduced, as it were, to ruin. Part by her defilement, part by the opposition of her enemies. And it's then that the Lord sends grace. Take the disciples on the night in which Christ was betrayed. Eleven men in an upper room. The rest of the world reviling Christ. Where was the cause of Christ? What hope did the church have then? But it was then that Christ was building his church with the mortar of his own blood. You see, friend, the church can always say as the apostle does. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raised the dead. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. You see, friend, the point of this text is so very basic, isn't it? That Christ is building his church in this moment so that he alone receives all glory. He raises the church, as it were, from the least likely of places, with the least likely of means, so that all would know salvation is only from him. He alone builds Zion, and he alone then bears her glory. In other words, friend, as it's true for the individual Christian, so it is for the church. Christ would have his people be a living example of his power. And to do so, he makes her a burning bush. Burning in the furnace of affliction. But showing forth that in his presence and by his power, she's not consumed. How dark the night, friend, does the church know. And yet, even as we see it in our text this evening, even from that unlikely place, the church is to expect the rejuvenation that is very much embodied in the name, the branch. Even from the least likely of instruments, even from the darkest of times, well, friend, she's to expect great things from her Christ. And so the prophet tells the people in his day, do not despise the day of small things. It is Christ's custom to bring the church into its darkest moment.
before he brings forth its greatest light. Thirdly and finally as we close, we have here in the text a council. And that you have in the end of the 13th verse. The council of peace, says the prophet, shall be between them both. Now he's speaking of only one branch, and so the question is, who is the both, if you will? Well, the both refers to what's gone beforehand, these two thrones. There is a throne of ruling, and a throne that is priestly. And friend, there's so much here, and we simply don't have the time. But, but as you look at this text, you see here a harmony between kingship and priesthood. And you see them both, as it were, coalescing in one Christ, the branch. And what you have here, friend, beautifully, is you have this idea that the priesthood of Christ, that which secures for the people of God reconciliation with God, is in perfect harmony with that sovereignty of Christ, by which he subdues his people to himself, and through which he brings to them true temporal and eternal blessing. That is the counsel of peace that binds them both. Oh, and beloved, do you see this here? This really is the bottom and the foundation of everything that's gone before. All of the rejuvenation that should come from Christ comes because He is Zion's only King. Because He is Zion's priestly King who secures for her peace with God. And out of that peace also promises all kinds of blessing for this life and that which is to come. You see, friend, as we look at this text, it raises that question, doesn't it? Do we know this branch? He's called rejuvenation and spring itself. And so do you know him by experience as the one who makes all things new? Do you know him, in other words, as he functions in his office as one who makes all things new? As a prophet to renew the mind? As a king to subdue you newly to himself who were once rebels and aliens to the kingdom of righteousness? Do you know him as a priest who brings you to God in that new and living way? Do you know him as the branch? The friend, for those of you who do, and especially on a night like tonight, this text reminds us, beloved, that we are not to limit the hand of the Most High. If our Christ is one who is pleased to be called rejuvenation and pleased to build his church from the least likely of places in the least likely of times, we should not think lightly of a night like tonight. The world has trained us so well, hasn't it, to think lightly of moments like this. And dare I say we ourselves encourage each other to do the same. But beloved, What great grace might the Lord bring? What great things might the Lord do for his people tonight? Should we limit the hand of the Most High, who's pleased to bring from small things great grace to his own? He is, after all, called spring. He is, after all, the one who brings from nothing all the good that comes to his people. And so that is the exhortation that we come back to, that we began with. What shall we do? We live in dark times. We live in a dire time. The friend, as you look at Zechariah, you have an answer. 
The prophet urges them to look to Christ through this type. Urges them to look to the one who, the one who alone builds Zion and the one who alone bears her glory. And what's his exhortation? Build. 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 Why? Because it's your privilege to do so. Set about the work of God because it is your privilege to work for Him. Build. Because it is your love debt. The one who has redeemed you employs you in His work. It is merely a token of gratitude to build. But, oh friend, build, says the prophet, because through Christ you are ensured success. Build, labor, because the one who is called the branch will not fail to rejuvenate his vine. Build, because this is the one who builds Zion, and he alone who bears her glory. It's striking as the church under age grasped that very thing. The elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. And they build it and finish it according to the commandment of the God of Israel. Friend, our calling for this evening is the very self-same thing. To look expectantly to our Christ in spite of the darkness around us. And know that he is the one who has secured Zion's prosperity. And even through means that are small, he will fulfill his calling. Amen.